Welcome everybody, Andrew Holacek here, um, and I am delighted to be able to spend the next few minutes with uh, quite an influential scholar and lucid dreamer in the Western world, Ryan Hurd. So let me tell you a little bit about who Ryan is, and then we're just going to jump right in discussing what I think you will find to be uh, just a, a host of really provocative topics. So Ryan is a dream researcher, author, and educator. He's the author of Sleep Paralysis and co-editor with Kelly Buckley of Lucid Dreaming. It's a two-volume set, um, New Perspectives on Consciousness and Sleep, as well as several full-length e-books. Ryan is a lecturer in psychology and holistic studies at John F. K. University as part of their online consciousness studies program. He has been invited to lecture at many academic venues, including Stanford. His work has been featured on NPR, CNN, TED Med, Psychology Today, and other media venues. Ryan's dream research blog, dreamstudies.org, is also one of the most popular dream research blogs in the world. And I wanted to toss this in, Ryan, because I came across this in your, um, on your site, which I thought was pretty cool. Quote, my chief aim is to help bring about a new dreaming culture that integrates the best of 21st century thought with the intuitive ways of knowing prized by our ancestors dreams, visions, and imagination, end quote. So I thought that was a pretty cool um, kind of summation of your charter. And one of the reasons I'm so um, happy to have you on board, and, and I have to say it personally, Ryan, that your work, the, what you, especially the two volumes that you did with Kelly, I would say is one of the great contributions uh, in the Western world to the topic of lucid dreaming altogether. The, this anthology I've read several times, it's chock full of the most amazing contributions by um, scholars, scientists, researchers, and the like from around the world. So terrific job on that. And thank you so much for, for cranking that out. And thanks so much for spending some time with us. We appreciate it. Yeah. Oh, well, thanks for having me, Andrew. And thanks for the warm words about that anthology, which I always regret is so expensive for the average reader. And so I always tell people, print out, you know, the the sheet and take it to your librarian uh, yeah. because that's really what we're trying to do is get this volume into libraries so more and more people can read it because it is unfortunately, you know, as an academic two volume set, it's it's pretty pricey. Yeah, but I have to say as as a as a student of this field, it's worth every penny. I mean, uh, the what what you were able to collate put together here is is really a remarkable contribution. And so before we get into some of the uh, maybe how deeper dive aspects of, of this amazing field. If you don't mind spending just a few minutes sharing with us, I always like to start this um, this way with giving us a short riff on your personal journey. Like what got you so jazzed about lucid dreaming? Well, okay, sure. So I've been a lucid dreamer for probably most of my life. I, I mean, my first memories of hypnagogic experiences were probably around age six or seven or so. And I would basically, my method of going to sleep would be to close my eyes and to wait for the wonderful, you know, the cosmic dots, all those beautiful multicolor images to arise. And then if the, if everything was aligned correctly, those dots would become three-dimensional and become a vortex. And then I would enter the vortex and fall asleep. And this was something that I would try to do when I was when I was young as a way of relaxing and going to sleep. 
And the larger picture of that was, is that point I was beginning to have lots of nightmares. And so I was trying to take control of my thought processes as I went into sleep because going to sleep is, you know, can be very challenging if you're nightmare prone. Uh, that's where we, that's where it all comes out, right? That's yeah. where we all feel the most unprotected. So, so my lucidity and this kind of t- continued to be a trend for me. Lucidity, especially in adolescence and um, young adulthood, was always not always, but it was tethered to my relationship to nightmares. Mm. I would become lucid during a nightmare. Um, I would use my lucidity to beat back the nightmare or wake myself up, you know, and basically that first sort of primal sense of power would be to to say no and, uh, you know, to not accept this. And, and so it was really about, you know, achieving some power uh, over my own, you know, scene in my own um, field. Uh, and, and of course, I had some wonderful lucid dreams as well at the time. And, and then with, with sexual maturity, I mean, that's a whole, that's a whole thing we can talk about at length, I'm sure, um, about how lucid dreaming and sexuality really um, can be, uh, they're really prized for each other, it seems. Uh, the mind really uh, goes there easily. Uh, and so for me, I, I've always, you know, I continue to, to be interested in my dreams. I've kept a dream journal since I was 14. Uh, so I have about 30 years now of dream journals and I always wanted to study it, but I, in, I guess it was about halfway through college when I became very interested in trying to get grounded rather than going into dreams more. And I almost feel like this is, my life seems to be set up in this polar way where the dreams tend to want to take me out of my body and, and, and far off and, you know, in sort of expansiveness. And then when I feel like I have too much of that and I'm getting soggy in a way, mm-hmm. I, I I have this urge to get grounded. And so I became very interested in the field of archaeology yeah. uh, and cultural resource management and very material existential concerns. Uh, and so I ended up graduating um, with a degree in archaeology and I became a field archaeologist for a number of years. Uh, and I really did get grounded through that work, and it was healing. And then while that was happening, then the dreams began coming up, come up again, and percolating again. Uh, and and I said, you know what, I've I've got to study this further too. And so that's when I went back to school uh, to study consciousness studies at John F. Kennedy University, where I got a master's degree. Um, and it it was a wonderful time about 15 years ago, when there were so many dream experts, scholars, researchers, dream workers, they're, they're still there too, many of them in the Bay Area of, you know, San Francisco and California. Sure. Um, but at John F. Kennedy, that was just a hot time. And we had so many rich discussions and, and classes. And uh, I just felt like I got just this wonderful education. Uh, and so, yeah, since, since then, I've been, you know, Doing this mission of public education for for dreaming and 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 I do still find that my work with nightmares is one of my touchstones, especially in the lucid dreaming community, because I feel like it's something that's often not talked about as much and perhaps misunderstood, um, avoided. 
uh, denied that it even exists to some extent. Um, and so part of my work has been to, to try to hold that up as that this is an important part of the phenomena. Uh, and there's lots of potential in it. And so that is still to this day something I'm always, you know, um, when I when someone emails me who's having trouble with nightmares, they're the ones that I email back first, you know, they're the yeah. ones who are suffering the most. Yeah, awesome. Well, you know, one of the things that really intrigues me about your work, Ryan, is just how um, far ranging it is. You know, I mean, you're you're one of these kind of integral, integrated um, theorists, thinkers, um, scholar practitioners that really resonates with my own approach. I mean, really, you cover the range from from science to spirituality, from neural phenomenology to non-duality, and and that just rocks. I mean, that's where you can get <laughs> the best of the East and the West. And and I was also really, it's interesting, you know, your your interest in archaeology, both inner and outer, because I, I, I'm sure you would completely agree that these explorations with the nocturnal mind, in certain sense, are kind of like. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah, so the internal archaeology or um, the dreaming archaeology, as, as Robert Moss has called it, where we kind of go spelunking <laughs> into our own, absolutely, into our own nether regions. It's so it's so true, and and by doing in doing field work and doing. Um, and really being steeped in the world of of you know treasures, really, it's kind of created this really rich uh, archetypal language for my own personal dream that I just love. I, I'm you know I'm still consistently finding, for instance, in my dreams, I'll I'll see you know, a, a quartz you know by you know blade that's Paleolithic in origin. And as I'm investigating it in the dream, I become lucid because it's just so marvelous. And so it's like the the ancient tools in the dreams actually help wake me up. Yeah, you know, it's, it's really, you're, in your contribution, Ryan, I have to say, um, in the two volumes set, you know, the title, of, of course, is Unearthing the Paleolithic Mind in Lucid Dreamings. I thought it was bloody brilliant. I mean, if you can paraphrase, and I know it's difficult because you just cover so much terrain in that. But if you could paraphrase a little bit about um, this aspect of your own work, I, I think people would find it really compelling. And then what I want to do is turn to what I feel is one of your seminal contributions in this field is the, the willingness and the courage to explore some of the dark sides of lucid dreaming. Because as, as we both know, it's pretty sexy, easy to sell the entertainment aspect of lucid dreaming and, and that sort of thing. But, um, you know, wherever, wherever you find light, you will find shadows. And I want mm -hmm. to talk more about those shadows and especially your work with lucid nightmares and, and the like. But before we do that, give people just a, a taste of what you contributed to this amazing anthology by talking a little bit about this paleolithic mind. So, so this concept of the paleolithic mind is it's it's to be a metaphor, uh, in in the sense that when we enter into lucid dreaming, lucid dreaming is an is a state of consciousness that's been around a long time, and we, you know, since the time when we were painting on caves two hundred thousand years ago as a species, and maybe before that, and and having visited some of these paleolithic caves. You know, I'm I'm convinced that some of them really are bringing in these projections, dream projections. Um, cave space is dream space, and and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, but in in the sense that it's it's ancient, uh, it's also culture so culturally variable, and that there's no one right way to lucid dream. 
there's no one way to go about it. And almost everything that we even define lucid dreaming by is almost an assumption, um, which is, gets difficult when you look into the ethnography, trying to find other cultures who practice you know, self-awareness while dreaming, because in some of these cultures, there's an assumption that people know that they're dreaming a good part of the time because they have an integrated culture where they do dream sharing and they do lots of mythologies and storytelling and they just, it's easier because there's cultural support for lucidity. Whereas from our culture, it's kind of this, right. it's seen as right a, an anomaly that there's, you know, consciousness or awareness in the dream state. And that's our, and so we have to fight kind of uphill, I think as Westerners against, um, this sort of sorry story we've been told about how dreams, um, we don't have much to do with it. Um, and that it just, they happen to us when clearly, you know, as Scott Sparrow says, you know, there, it's a co-creative landscape. You know, we enter into the dream and we're entering into a relationship with this dynamic field. Uh, and stuff emerges spontaneously. We react to it. Our reactions, you know, cause a, a million different kinds of things to unfold. Uh, and so you can see how the cultural variability would be, be so huge. Uh, and with that, and so, and so one of the things that I talk about in that chapter about the Paleolithic mind is, is that lucid dreaming in terms of its interest in personal development is there's aspects of it that are popular right now and aspects of it that are not so popular. And it kind of comes down to the, there's always discussion and, and, and rightfully so a, a focus on how can we be expansive and transpersonal and enter into light like spaces and sort of, the, you know, move beyond ourselves. And, but there's also kind of hidden in these dreams possibilities when soul ducks down into itself mm -hmm. and rather than expansive transpersonal experiences, we essentially have morbid existential, um, provocative, emotional, psychosexual experiences. You know, you know, the, the realm of Tantra, for instance, that takes us in a different direction. And, and because we're Westerners and we're, not very comfortable with our bodies and we live in a patriarchy and we're not comfortable with women's bodies. Um, there's, there's a lot of stuff that gets sort of, you know, polluted with the idea of what is spirituality. Yep. Uh, and so sort of all these sort of shamanic angles, which is really, you know, embodied spirituality, um, being in relationship with nature, um, emotionality as a source of power, not something to fight against to become clear, but to to harness and to purify in its own right. These kind of capabilities are often not discussed seriously in yeah. lucid dreaming, and that's and so I use the Paleolithic mind as a metaphor to say, look, there's we have these these um, shamanic states, and then we have these meditative states, and lucid dreaming is really you know, a, a portal into many other ways of being. And so which way do you want to go? Absolutely. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, in my in my kind of cartography of the, what I refer to as the nocturnal meditations, I have this kind of Hegelian transcend but include model. It's just my schema where lucid dreaming is really a platform into dream yoga, which can be a platform into sleep yoga, which can be a platform into bardo yoga with each one 
transcending but including its predecessor. But you know, you, you hit on so many incredibly provocative topics already. I mean, you know, one is, you know, the difference between our monophasic Western culture um, and this really incredibly restricted, myopic, limited way of looking at mind, and especially dream. And then with Charles Laughlin, you know, we're both uh, fans of his work, mm -hmm. what he writes about is polyphasic cultures and how of the 4,000, outside of the, you know, Western European cultures, there are some 4,000 cultures around the world and uh, like 90% of them honor dreams as much as they honor waking reality. And so the Western view is actually in the minority. We, we have this kind of uh, restricted, utterly restricted view that I would argue is based on um, subliminal wake centricity, site centricity is all in the service mm -hmm. of egocentric, um, you know, kind of trajectories that really limit, I think, partly because the egoic mind is afraid of the dark. It's afraid, you know, dark being a codeness, code word for the unconscious mind or for even ignorance, that, that the egoic mind is afraid of, of the dark. And so we then, the egoic mind then kind of colonizes and dismisses other states of consciousness it can't fully experience. And it's, it's typically in line with the Western way, which is what scientism does to science. You know, we just shut out yes. all these other ways of looking at it. And that's what's so cool about what you're doing is you, your, your javelin is thrown so far and so wide that you bring in and kind of update this outdated operating system that we have in the West that really is, um, you know, pardon the, the further play on the word is still stuck in the dark ages. Um, yeah, so, you know, right. Yeah, no, go ahead. Uh, so, I mean, what you're saying about about colonizing really strikes a chord with me. And, and that's something that that I've been wrestling with for quite some time is how, you know, can we be lucid without um, colonizing the dream space, that's right. uh, which is something that as Western dreamers, essentially, it's just in the water. Basically, you can't you have to address it because it's it's just it's in the it's in the in the code, um, you know. And and as American dreamers, manifest destiny is is in the code. Um, yeah. You know, we have the sense that we're explorers, you know, in a vast wilderness, and we're you know swashbuckling our way through it. Um, hey, it turns out there's already people living here. That's you right. Know. <laughs> and, you know, uh, it's it, not. You know, yeah. And as you know, this is one reason that that Carl Jung. Um, was reluctant to endorse lucid dreaming because he saw it as is a, a potential for egoic self-aggrandizement. You know where where the ego then just colonizes the dream state yet again. Um, and so I think these kind of warnings are yeah. really important for uh, intrepid explorers of the of the nocturnal mind because we yeah because he was right <laughs> exactly it's happening. That's yeah, exactly. it's totally it's totally true, and in and, and of course the myths of that line of thinking and lucid dreaming continuously gets repeated in, in through just the marketing language that yeah. that book publishers use to publish our own books about lucid dreaming, which can even have the opposite message. But nonetheless, we get kind of thrown back into that strange, you know, frontier consciousness. Um, where you know we can do anything we want, you know, and um, and it, it's it's hard. I feel like that that's one of the central problems, I guess, or you know, uh, untruths about lucid dreaming that I'm that I'm always um, trying to bring back up is what what is this about control and why is this yeah. so important? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's again, that's just the ego's agenda, and and that's what makes your your work unique. 
uh, Ryan, is, you know, your guides, as we cut through this underbrush, come from the ancient um, traditions as well as modern science. And so the ability to draw on, on both of these, I think, instills your work with a type of um, comprehensiveness that, that really resonates with me. But I, I want to talk to you because you are, you are really quite savvy in this area. Uh, about the, the dark sides of lucid dreaming. Um, and in particular, we can morph this quite nicely into your really elegant work on lucid nightmares. But talk to us a little bit more. You know, you write about how it is that something that has this kind of power to cure um, all the, the uh, benefits that are highly touted. And I have to say, I tout them myself because if, if you don't kind of uh, explore the benefits, then why bother? Um, so I think the benefits do need to be touted. But at the same time, we, I think there's a little bit of uh, devil's advocacy involved here because we can overinvest and realize that there are some shadow elements to this journey. So speak to us a little bit about that and also uh, interject a little bit of your own personal experience and how you work with your nightmares in this regard. Sure. So, so yeah, like I've said, nightmares, you know, tend to find me. Um, at least they, they did in the first half of life quite often. Um, and one of the things that I kept running into was almost this sense of shame that I would have a lucid dream, but not be able to be in control of what was happening. Um, because by my own limited definitions of what lucid dreaming is, is that by lucid, I should have have this power. Um, and, and so I began clumsily trying to wield power over nightmares. And it's totally unsuccessfully most of the time. I mean, so when we're younger, it's important, and I should say this at the beginning, is, is that people who are having lucid nightmares, it's important to be able to, to realize, okay, this is a dream, and I can wake myself up. And to and to work on that eject button, and and know that it's in your back pocket. And so that's the kind of thing that I, you know, developed when I was when I was a teen. And that's what I would do. I would essentially be like, oh, I don't want to go here. And then I would bounce. That's super healthy. And there's yeah. nothing wrong with bouncing yep. out of a dream if you're not if you're in the moment because this is our own experiences, and we're often doing this, you know self-work. And so you have to go with your gut feeling on that. Um, that said, you know, over time, I learned the value of staying put uh, rather than sort of flying away every time there was conflict, but rather what happens if I sit and sweat a little mm -hmm. bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and this kind of wraps into bigger questions that has less to do with lucidity and more has to do with sort of the, well, the function of dreams and in the workings of the psyche, which is that the longer we stay put, the more we <laughs> will come into conflict. That's right. Um, and it's inevitable. Um, and once we face that conflict, though, other processes begin to happen. And, and it's not a quick fix, but we begin to, you know, work towards resolutions um, and, and it happens. And so, uh, Often, and there's, you know, there's emotions are a smoke shield, and, and in dream space, an emotion becomes a visual smoke shield. Our own <laughs> fear project, we project onto the projections. So there's something spontaneous, autonomous that that is now in our space, and we're in relationship with it. But the fear that I project onto this this entity, this truly this other, can really 
you know, make a difference um, about how I interact with that and which way that this interaction can go. And so I think Charlie Morley says it really well about lucid dreamings, about getting to, to love yourself. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really wonderful way to encapsulate the idea and he, with his Buddhist perspective as well. Uh, on the lucid nightmare front, this is this is the process that I began working with too, is is sitting with the other and being open to having a conversation or an exchange or whatever kind of energetically needs to happen. and um, and learning that sometimes it's okay to surrender. Yeah, and that sometimes it's okay to fight. And there's, I, I really can't say that there's, you know, there's one way to do it or one way not to do it. Um, we just sort of bumble along till we find what works for us um, as we develop. And we know we're on the right track when we wake up from a dream and we feel a sense of buzz or energy. And, and then the dreams kind of tend to come back anyway, because that's yep. the psyche. And yep. so we'll have repetitions. We, we know we're going to have another chance. And it might not be next week. It might be a year down the, the road, but we'll have another chance. And we have to kind of just lean into that a little bit and be like, well, I did my best <laughs> with, yeah. with that one. And we'll see what happens next time. But there's a real value to it. One of the, one of the more profound nightmares that is coming to mind for me right now is that I used to be um, plagued with dreams of bullies and and so I would you know I would become lucid in the dream and then there would become a, a pack of a pack of boys or men who would run after me and 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 you know try to shoot me or throw you know rocks at me and this kind of thing, um, and and this is just one of my dream themes. It's one of my now it's my, one of my ways of knowing oh this is a dream, mm-hmm. uh, and and so in one in one dream I had and this probably was about a decade ago or so I. Was, yeah, I was being thrown, again, rocks were being thrown at me. And there was one particular character who I'm looking at him and I just see how much hatred he has for me. And I tell him or mentally tell him, however it works in a dream, and say, I'm going to sit with you and we're going to talk about this. And we sit down on the bench together and I just decide I'm going to just continue to be open and to love love him even though he hates me yeah um, and find out what that's about and and I'm looking at him as I'm kind of going through this process because this is super terribly uncomfortable and I mean I feel so vulnerable and I just want to eject but I don't and I'm looking at him and I see that he's sweating he's sweating like he's doing hard work right. oh, he's like sweating bullets um, and uh, and 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 I tell him uh, I love you and and when I do that and he looks at me suddenly I have the urge to throw up and in the dream I throw Hmm. up Hmm. and I just there's just this suddenly you know so I vomit all over the place and 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 the dream diffuses and and I awake with this 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 wonderful clear feeling well and yeah I I mean it's just beautiful I mean the, the 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 throwing up is really is a form of cleaning up. And, and in integral theory, as you know, that's one of the lingos they use to work, um, to talk about working with shadow projection and shadow elements. And so, and you said a number of things here that really buzzed me a little bit in a good way. One is, couldn't agree more with what, what our mutual friend Charlie Morley 
uh, talks about, you know, in terms of love and nightmare, because I think this also applies very much to establishing a relationship to mind and meditation. And, and again, when you really think about what are dreams made of, well, dreams are made of your mind. And, and one of my central maxims as a meditation instructor for 30 years is, fun, is really fundamentally love your mind, be open to the contents of your mind, because children are the thoughts I should say thoughts are the children of your mind. Dreams are the children of your mind. And unless you're a pretty, you know, perverse parent, you're not going to throttle your kids, even when they're being unruly and throwing tantrums. If you're a good parent, you're, you're going to embrace them and create a, uh, as they say in Shambhala Buddhism, a cradle of loving kindness that allows that, that uh, particular energy to be um, kind of integrated and dissipated. But I want to return to one thing you said that struck me when you talked about the appearances and these disquieting dreams as other, and and to actually pose to you, is it really other? I mean, is it not, or could it not be just as viable to refer to those experiences as disenfranchised aspects of our unconscious self? Um, they're coming back for integration, for healing, and for holding. And and in that regard, again, completely resonant with this idea of loving the children of your mind. And so mm-hmm. we talk about other, I think, provisionally because it is other in this kind of internal sense, but fundamentally, as we know, if we're talking about true non-duality, there is no other. Um, and so this is perhaps a way to even puncture that illusion slash delusion at the level of, of the dream reality. Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Uh, and and But I try to always stick to that phenomenological experience of, of otherness uh, because we experience it in waking life too with other sentient humans um, and we project onto them as well with the same regularity as we do our own dream characters mm-hmm. and of course like right in our own dreams we might have the lucidity to say to a dream character well you're not real you're a part of my unconscious mind but how often do we think this dream body that i'm in right now it's also not real exactly yeah. i mean i often don't i'm just like you're not real but you know i'm the real deal here <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah it's, it's amazing the, the imputation is everywhere there's all kinds of projection taking place of a reifying sense of self and other and, and for me ryan you know i was a long time student of, of the tibetan buddhist tradition and and in classic dream yoga one of the uh, stages of actual dream yoga practice is either working with a spontaneous nightmare or if you don't have one uh, generating one, um, creating mm-hmm. fearful situations uh, volitionally as a way to work with fear. Because in, in the Tibetan view of mind, which really resonates with my own experience, fear is is arguably the primordial emotion of samsara. I mean, it's it's the fundamental essence that's, that's uh, conflated with the very sense of self. And I would argue that we spend the vast majority of our so-called conscious lives and a very sophisticated avoidance strategy, you know, whispering, uh, the unconscious mind whispering into the so-called conscious ear all the time, you know, avoid fear, which is fundamentally in the Buddhist view, the fear of the truth of your inherent non-existence, the fear of what Buddhists refer to as emptiness, or you get it really affectively laden, the fear of death. And so mm-hmm. to me, you know, I think this is where one of the charters in my life, and it seems to be in yours when you talk about nightmares, is kind of alchemical or tantric in nature is where we have the opportunity to transform obstacle into opportunity. And the greater the obstacle, the greater the opportunity. And so for a dream, yeah. Onai or not, working with fear, even though it's not the primordial existential fear, it's approximating it. 
And so for people who have nightmares and usually run from them, you know, fear is something that should be almost celebrated for, for true psycho-spiritual warriors because it's like now you're starting to get somewhere. You're starting to approximate the truth. And the closer you get, the more fearful it, it, it gets. And so I'm curious if that's resonated yeah. with your own experience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I was just thinking Jeremy Taylor, who passed away just a, a couple of years ago, used to say, congratulations, you know, when someone told him a nightmare. Yeah. Just for that just for that very reason. It's like, wow, you just had an authentic experience of self. Yep. You know, yep. um, that's really hard to have um, and to remember it and then to be able to integrate it. But, and also I was thinking, you know, Paul Foley, who was the great German uh, psychologist who did a lot of lucid dreaming research back in the 1960s. And then through translation, we, we get some of his conversations with Stephen LeBurge. He influenced Stephen's work you know, quite a lot. A lot yeah. uh, Paul Foley used to go looking for trouble. Um, right. He used to do exactly that. He would um, uh, become lucid in a dream and and go down the basement stairs to see what he found yeah, um, exactly. or set his dream body on fire to see what that was like. And, and you know, I have to say that experience isn't for everybody. Um, I found for me that it was quite fun. I, I used to uh, fling myself <laughs> off of dream cliffs again and again. That was my preferred way. Of, no, uh, I don't know. I don't know if you know it, but that's actually those are the two things that are actually in the classic dream yoga text. I mean, they say build a bonfire and jump into it, come to the edge of a cliff and jump off of it. Um, and so the fact that you would mention <laughs> both of those is is really kind of cool. And so has this, in fact, um, transformed obviously your relationship to nightmares. But how has it? Has it reduced their frequency? Do you still have nightmares? I mean, are you? Oh, it's, yeah. So my life's very different now. And I, and because I think of the, of two things, doing this work, but also doing this work with support. Mm -hmm. And, and so when I was in community, when I had a lucid dream instructor, when I had um, friends who were also going through their own process and we would meet up at a cafe or a bar once a month and talk about our experiences, um, even online communities. I mean, it's just important, I think, to have uh, a support network when going into into these spaces. And then, of course, like if it's we're talking about PTSD and more traumatized spaces, like yeah. there's higher levels of support one one can get um, because lucid dreaming is can be helpful for PTSD, and we're we're kind of learning that more and more. Um, so yeah, it's it's been transformative. One of the interesting things that happened for me is that. I would, I found by, cause when I was doing a lot of this, um, cliff, you know, flinging, I guess you could say, um, and I would always, I always love to, to dissolve the dream body and I would find just different ways to do it and enter into that void like space, um, which is often very quite expansive and, um, and I would sit in it for as long as I can. And then what happens sometimes uh, if I don't wake up is that the dream reforms, it recrystallizes. Mm. And if I'm lucky, I'll keep my lucidity while the dream recrystallizes. Mm -hmm. And at that point, one can set an intention. Or, and this is the harder thing, I think, to do, is to set an intention not to set an intention. Mm. And to see what comes. And to do that with a spirit of curiosity, not fear, right? Which, yeah. again, that's a meditation in itself. Exactly. Uh, but but once that's achieved, I found that this to be a very interesting template to uh, manifest dreams that were very provocative 
and scary that involved issues that I really, really needed to work through. And some, so some of these, uh, you know, I was doing this work, this is sort of the, the work in my master's thesis, the dreams would end up with ecstatic experiences. Um, some of them would end up with me in sort of in sort of nature mysticism moments of flying above forests and rivers and things like that. And then there was a subset of experiences where I would essentially enter into the past. <clears throat> and, you know, the dream would come back into crystallization. And first I'd feel the structure of, around me before I could see it. And then I'd be enclosed in a room. And then I would sort of see the room and then lastly, the dream body forms. And I'd look down and I realize I'm my 10 year old self right now. Wow. Wow. I'm in a small body and I would speak with a small voice. And then, and with that voice and that embodiment comes some really powerful emotion. And then characters would enter the scene and here I am doing psychodrama that, you know, just <laughs> manifested itself. And it's like, okay, you asked for it. Yeah. Um, here it is. Here's another opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those experiences are some of the most profound moments that I've had in the lucid dream. And so it's sort of like looking for trouble, but it's it's rather it's respectfully asking the dream to to bring it. So to find a way to create, you know, Jung talked about the tem the temenos, right? Yeah. This sort of sacred ring. To find a place, a way to enter a a space in between where you can be in conversation with the dream and then the dream comes and says here you go yeah it's fantastic it's like you know the first thing that came to mind is the play on that country song you know looking for growth in all the right places you know you have <laughs> you have the opportunity to take advantage of this astounding natural resource that we have literally underneath us uh, as we sleep dream and live and so so talk to us a little bit more ryan if you would about other shadow sides of lucid dreaming altogether. Um, and really, I, I'm doing this, of course, in, in the lens that if we go into the shadows, we may in fact discover that buried within them is the light. And so yeah. the shadows, yeah. you know, when, when viewed properly, the shadows should not be deterrents. I mean, the, the shadows could actually be invitations for solid growth, but that also has to be balanced with the relative approach of titrating one's experience, one's ability to handle the these sorts of things, because like you interjected very appropriately when you're talking about things like nightmares and whatnot, just like every other aspect of this nocturnal business, they, they occur across the spectrum from over-the-counter, somewhat more workable nightmares. So they're really, you know, the lucid terrors, I, I should say um, night terrors, and then of course things like PTSD, where you've got a different um, animal on your hand altogether, and so we can't bring some of these more entry-level approaches to some of these graduate level pathologies because the the seas are just much deeper but talk to us a little bit more about other shadow sides um, that you've discovered in your academic and personal work that can um, you know help us inform us yeah well so this concept of that going into the darkness is a way to get to the light i mean that's an ancient shamanic truth that you see cross-culturally um, the way to the upper world is through the lower world, the lower world of the body, of 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 um, of limitation, of fear, of you know, of animal instinct, um, but also of the earth, of fertility, right, of um, groundedness, of water, and so um, caves and basements and you know these natural places where sacred sites in you know in waking reality. Um, are revered are 
also extraordinarily powerful when they manifest in a lucid dream. And, uh, and so asking to find those places or, you know, you know, doing the trick where you open the door uh, to see what's there can lead to some of these, I would say, these natural portals on their own. And, you know, and if you, you know, come to a, a pathway and one path's going to a, a gleaming, you know, white castle in the sky, and then another one is a cranky old staircase into a dark hovel, take the staircase down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's the way to go. Um, and, and that's, and, and, and what's, I think what the psychological process here is that we're talking about is initiation, mm -hmm. which is something that we don't really have much of either in, in Western society. And so we have to go, like you said, go looking for trouble. Um, we, and we have to, we have to essentially self-initiate often. Um, so when we enter these spaces, we enter into, you know, these archetypal realms or these schemas or however you want to talk about the grand story of humanity, um, where we will encounter, you know, these internalized self-helpers, um, these mentors, um, you know, these allies and these 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 beasts who 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 challenge us to to do something harder to to go beyond our comfort zone to become something else, to transform. So rather than trying to transform the dream, to transform our own reactions in the dream, to transform our own essence. Uh, and so it moves into these old old spaces of initiation. Um, and that is, you know, besides all the unlearning we have to do, there's also, I hope I can take this dream to its completion, which is a meditative process. Uh, and hopefully the alarm doesn't go off type process. Uh, so there's so many things that happen, but you know I've I've entered into initiate in, initiation circles in my dreams that have been interrupted, and then they don't come back for a decade. Hmm. Oh, and wow. then it self and then it self arises again. And it's only now, like after having a dream journal for 30 years, I'm like, oh look at this. There's a there's a loop happening here, but it's wow. like it's only coming up every five or six years or so. It's really Wow, the lifespan. And now I'm beginning to see how interesting this is. You know the, how the how the cycles work. Not that I've mapped it or I've made sense of it yet, but but uh, so so the darkness is very important because it's fruitful. It it, yeah. it truly is fruitful. And I think James Hillman's work here, uh, the the underworld of dreams, wonderful book. It turned around almost everything I thought I knew about the psyche when I read that. And it still challenges me and not, not that I agree with everything that he wrote, but he really talks about the difference between the, or sort of the associations that we make that are false about, you know, about darkness, just being about death and decay when there's also this fertile aspect to it. Yeah. Uh, this, yeah. this, this fruitful aspect to it. And, and, um, yeah, and there's so that's sort of um, the the dark dark femininity that is a part of spirituality that I think as Westerners were super not comfortable really with, yeah. yeah we're not comfortable with you don't know how to recognize it the dark feminine is super scary it's all yeah. it's all teeth and blood yeah. and we're like Ooh, you know uh, I liked it clean with those nice light shapes and crystals and, and it's it's right so we have to work with these 
these distinctions here. So there's different ways to be lucid. There's different ways to to interact into these uh, into these spaces. Yeah, I think this is a really a, a incredibly important um, aspect for spiritual practitioners to understand because until we bring these shadow elements into life, these uh, the beasts that hang down below the radar, um, you know, backstage always runs on stage. And so it's one of the ways to talk about what it means to wake up in the sense of Buddhism being the awakened one is that if we don't wake up to these um, unconscious elements, they really dictate most of our so-called conscious lives. That's, that's really what it means to be asleep. And so for me, Ryan, it's, it's one reason why I put the culmination, again, in my cartography of these nocturnal practices, Bardo Yoga, which are the death practices, the death um, mm -hmm. teachings in the Tibet tradition. I put those at the very top because that's fundamentally where these practices can take you into the, the deepest dimensions of darkness. And literally, as you may or may not know, in the Tibetan tradition, death is, yeah. is literally referred to as the dream at the end of time. And so by exploring yeah. dreams at these deepest levels, we're actually preparing for death and, and fundamentally getting to the point where we can discover the illusory nature of death, that there's no such thing. Um, mm. So the, the idea is that these practices, as, as we both know, they go so far and so deep and, and that basically the entire spectrum of consciousness can be uh, completely journeyed every night when we drop into these um, incredibly provocative states of mind. Um, and you know, Pema, Pema, Pema Chodron, I'm sure you've, you've heard of her, one of her most popular mm -hmm. books, is literally the places that scare you, which is the idea that <laughs> yeah. you know if you want if you really want to wake up, follow the black light. Uh, don't don't be so seduced into the white light, which is a common kind of new age trap. And so to turn, this is great. I mean, you know, we're talking about just the really juicy stuff here. So we're talking about death, darkness. Now the other thing that I want to kind of dovetail back into that that you talked about at the very outset is sexuality. I mean, dreams, death, and sex. I mean, what a great series of topics. So, <laughs> so talk to me a little bit more uh, in it, about your your understanding um, doctrinally and experientially about how we can use the medium of our dreams, in particular lucid dreams, to to work with another very powerful energetic impetus in, in our lives, sexuality. Right. Yeah. 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 So, you know, I think. I was looking at my Google Analytics for my blog recently. Like, what's the most popular articles I've ever written? And you'd be shocked to discover, Andrew, that that it was how to have a lucid sex dream. There you go. Was, you know, <laughs> what a surprise. What a surprise. It was right up there in the top three or four. Um, and, and yeah, and so, I mean, clearly it's a, uh, it's a strong motivation. Uh, it's the safest sex around. Yeah, um, it's it's a wonderful way to explore one's interests and to uh, experiment and to go beyond, you know, our narrow notions of our own identity. And so I think for especially for people who are coming to age who are having lots of lucid dreams anyway, because that's just the way that that it works. The brain is going through a process and we're just very lucid from, you know, from 14 to 25 um, and so this is a wonderful way to explore sexuality, sensuality, eroticism. And, um, but of course, the shadow side of that is, is that we go with that conquistador attitude. Yeah. And so, you know, you don't have to go far in a lucid dreaming form to, to hear people talking about how they rape their dream characters. 
and it's always it's just um, so disturbing to me um, about this kind of about this kind of attitude. Well, these these characters don't matter. Um, they, you know, and it's like, well, we're, we're tr- remember, we're training our brain every time we have an experience. We're <laughs> literally encoding this yeah. and yeah. re-encoding uh, how we think about the world and our, our place and our relation in it. And I mean, I and in my own, you know, and I'm not above this when I was young and I would, you know, go chasing. And of course, you enter into a cat and mouse game in a dream. It um, doesn't go well. Uh, and so what starts off with an attractive dream lover soon becomes a lifeless doll or, um, you know, clay or a blow up doll. I mean, the, the dream has no has very funny ways of just saying, hey, look, look at this. You're absolutely just um, <laughs> taking what could be a consensual experience and you've turned it into, into you know, some way to get yourself off because that's not what lucid dreaming sensuality can teach us. It can take us so much further into than have an orgasm, but rather to share a experience with this dream other uh, to open up right into love. Yeah. Uh, into sharing into into those into those bodily feelings. And that's where the power is. And that is, of course, this is, you know, Eastern Eastern powers of of, of Tantra and um, uh, you know, yoga and other ways of working with sexual energies and then rechanneling them. Um, it it begins it begins at this level sometimes, and you've got to work with where you're resonating. And so, if you're resonating down there a lot, that's where you should work. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and you know and and you know on a side note, like we live in a culture that has rather than attacks by incubi or Vampires, we tend to get attacked by aliens who anal probe us, and so so there's people who have lots of experiences with that horrendous experience. Well, they're resonating at their root chakra, yep. and that's an experience that needs to get turned around and worked with. That's really hard to do, especially if, like most lucid dreamers in American culture, who who buy this material to have more lucid dreams often are men um, and, you know, heterosexual men. And so, and, and as a heterosexual man, you know, I've had to deal with my own discomforts of all the ways that the body wants to express itself in the dream and the energies that come. So we have to just like kind of blow through some of that stuff um, because it opens up it opens up into, into love and essentially the self becomes wider. And it yeah. concentric rings of just expansion um, when when we can do so. Yeah, that's fantastic. And and is as, as you may or may not know, Ryan, um, this is completely resonant or confluent with this idea of working with primordial energetics like fear in, in an equally primordial way. Desire is monumental, and in fact, in Buddhist cosmology, um, we live in what's referred to as the realm of desire. In other words, it is it is desire that moves us. I mean, if you want to get up after this conversation and get a drink from the fridge. It's desire that's going to move you to do that. If you're going to go to the gym, it's desire that's going to do it. And so what what these nocturnal practices do that is that is completely in line with, as you mentioned, um, Tantric or Vajrayana Buddhism altogether, is the ability to work with desire 
at these most archetypal levels and then transforming them, transforming the heat of passion into the warmth of compassion. And so I think this is super mm -hmm. important for, for dreamers because these are two biggies in, in the nighttime arena is fear and, and sex. And so instead of running um, away from one and towards the other, if we can learn how to relate to both of them in this more psycho-spiritual sense, we have this incredible opportunity every single night to work with desire at this most archetypal level, because that's really what tantric Buddhism does. It, it, it fundamentally targets, it's literally called penetrating the vital point where you do mm. these energetic practices like Chandali, um, Tumo, or in Hindu language, Kundalini, as a way to raise these energies volitionally, as a way to develop a more sane relationship to them so that when they arise, not only in the dream state and you can relate to them more intelligently, but in this kind of bi-directional way, you can take the insights from the nocturnal mind and transform them into your diurnal life. And so therefore, then when passion arises in, in your daily experiences, you're no longer dominated by it. You relate to it instead of from it. And, and that's monumental. That, that transition is the alchemical transition. And the opportunity to do that within the context of the dream is yet another fantastic opportunity. But also, as you know, near it is the shadow side. Because if you capitulate to it, as you're suggesting, using the tennis of neuroplasticity, you know, what you do with your mind, even the dreaming mind affects your, drain, your brain, affects your subtle body, and, and can even affect your body. And so, as I put it, lucid dreams are not karmically tax-free. Uh, and that's both good news and bad news. What, what you do down there doesn't stay down there. You can bring it up into your life and then, and then trans, um, literally transplant it into your waking consciousness. Um, and so for me, when you, when you riff on right. these sorts of things, it's like just totally spot on. Yeah. I mean, I can, you know, I, when you look at it, even from an existential perspective, every human experience that we have, you know, is an opportunity to, to grow or to, or to cling. Uh, and so, yeah, in lucid, this happens in lucid dreaming and in a waking life and, and they do, they, they double back on each other. Uh, and so in, some of the more troubling aspects of sexuality is when they do intertwine with terror, which is what we see often in some of these sleep paralysis experiences with intruders. Um, and, it, you know, this is something that is really difficult for people to talk about, but it's super common, yeah. especially in the lucid dreaming community when people are already doing things like changing their their sleep cycle or waking up in the middle of the night or taking galantamine and other supplements and doing things that cause shifts in, in, in our biorhythms, sleep paralysis becomes sort of more common. Isolated sleep paralysis becomes more common. And then sometimes if you're prone to that, so to speak, it's it's possible that you'll have one of these, you know, entity encounters um, in the classic sense of essentially being, you know, ghost raped, um, which is known some, you know, throughout the world of being simultaneously horrified and turned on because it's, it's just, you know, there it's two coin, two sides of the same coin. Um, and working with that dynamic is really challenging yeah. um, because it doesn't translate into waking consciousness at all um you know and so wow how do we how do you navigate that space and 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 it always comes back to this sense of trust being able to take a moment take a breath having curiosity that kind of overcomes one's fear 
you know, and, and creating a loop of, of, of trust within an encounter. And that's where you see these transformational shifts, you know, actually in the images of, of, of the figures who are besetting us. Yeah. And so, you know, you know the hag becomes, you know, the beautiful, the beautiful figure. Um, and the devil becomes the Adonis. And, and these things, you know, they really, um, there are gods in a sense. Yeah. You know, that this is the the forms that they take, and and so it's just by shifting our attitude and working with it, it's we hone that from one extreme to another. But you're right, it's it really is, you know, um, from a non-dual perspective, it's sort of the same. You're working with the same stuff here. <laughs> yeah, the the energetics start to converge. So talk to us. You you're obviously an expert in sleep paralysis. You literally wrote a book on it. And I have I have one technical question before I want you to just riff on this a little bit because it's it's truly one of the more fascinating topics both in the science of sleep and also the phenomenology of sleep. And and my question is the technical one is the the relationship between sleep atonia and sleep paralysis. Are are they in fact synonymous or is sleep paralysis, just a, a, a slightly inappropriate relationship to sleep atonia. Do you see them as the same thing or do you see sleep paralysis as an inappropriate relationship to atonia? I, I, I suppose maybe define sleep paralysis to our listeners mm -hmm. as well. Right. So, so, so sleep paralysis is, is really awareness of sleep atonia, essentially. And it, it's, it's, it's awareness of, of being in a dream state and not being able to move. Um, it's awareness, essentially, while the body is still asleep, awareness of the of consensual reality. And so it's essentially being sort of stuck in between um, two states of mind. Uh, and it's, it's yes, it is a bardo state, oh my gosh. And so it's in it, in it, it as a sleep symptom, it's an extension of REM, and so in REM sleep, you know, where our, our muscles are 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 dampened, we don't have any muscle tone, and we experience that as paralysis. Um, and but when we're sleeping, of course, maybe this has an evolutionary capability. Who knows uh, really how that kind of happened? But when we're dreaming, we're essentially not moving our big skeletal muscles. The diaphragm is even dampened itself. There's mm -hmm really not much going on except eye movements and little twitches in our fingers and whatnot. And so that paralysis extends as the mind wakes up, the frontal lobe wakes up, we realize where we are, we become lucid in the sense of, oh, I'm sleeping in my bed right now and I can feel my physical body. We try to move, can't move. And then people experience pressure on the chest or in the throat. Uh, with that comes really strong emotionality um, because we're still in a REM state. So we're still in a very emotional space. The amygdala is still really fired up. And so people get into some just hot flashes of, you know, death anxiety occurs, uh, feeling, feelings of victimhood um, with that sense of that there's something else in the room. And so we sort of project a, you know, a, another an autonomous other into the room with us as this is the person or the thing responsible for why I can't move and that's holding me down. And then it comes sometimes 
rarely, more rarely, still common, with these hypnagogic hallucinations of actually seeing an entity that's doing this or, you know, interacting with the dreamer and drooling on the dreamer or riding the dreamer in the sexual way or just throttling the dreamer. And so there's so many traditions, there's so many different ways that this creatures have been seen. And some people see some of the same stuff, but it really, there's a lot of cultural variability. So that's really what it is, is this, this sort of strange shadow state, bardo zone that, um, that exists, that is, it's mostly, it's harmless. It just happens, it tends to happen for most of us when sleep has been disrupted. Our cycles are a little, have shifted some. We're jet lagged. We had yeah. too much caffeine the night before. We're hungover. Yeah. We're anxious. We're super stressed. We're going through a life change, moving house, uh, you know, jobs, right. Right. you know, and then other people who have it experienced it from narcolepsy. They experience it from sleep apnea. It becomes a symptom of a, of a larger sleep issue. Okay. Uh, and they can you- suffer terribly. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ryan, but did I not read a study that that some scholars, scientists, um, attribute alien abductions to a misinterpretation of sleep paralysis? Did do you remember reading something about that? Yeah, so that's Susan was McClancy's work, uh, and and I think there's a strong argument that some alien abduction narratives um, are sleep paralysis experiences. Uh, because, and this is the thing I didn't really mention, is is that when you're going through these experiences, they feel really real. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not like I'm in a dream, not even I'm in a lucid dream. I mean, it's I'm in bed and I can't move. And something that's really gross and wants to kill me is on top of yeah. me. And yeah. it's, 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 I mean, even now when I have sleep paralysis, which is, you know, it's rarely, but I still have it occasionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, it's fascinating how yeah. scary it is. I have to work through my fear every single time. I have a protocol, but I have to work through it every single time. <laughs> I can't rest yeah. on my laurels. Totally. I, I'm the same way because I now I understand it a little bit. I, I find it completely fascinating. It's not to say it's still not a bit disconcerting because, you know, this sense of control is gone, but I find it instead of freaking out, and I'm sure you just said, I have to interject, I'm sure you know Shelley um, Adler's work with sleep paralysis yes. and nocebo effect. I mean, when I read that, I, that just blew me away. Um, yes. Briefly for our listeners, it was this um, really interesting medical anthropological account of young low Asian men that were mysteriously dying in their sleep. But what, what did she call it? Sudden unexpected nocturnal death syndrome. And she yes. discovered that basically it was, it was their misinterpretation of sleep paralysis and, and the, the the fact that the, the imputed fact that they thought they were, they were being attacked by some spiritual um, guardians or the like because they were unable to practice their religion properly and, and their belief system was so powerful that unlike placebo effect which cures nocebo effect harms and, and literally they scared themselves to death because of a misinterpretation right. which is that Although I mean, the, what, mis- the missing pieces and I always have to say this because people this is a scary story, you know, that it's possible you could scare yourself to death. What happened with these Hmong refugees is these that these young men who were dying, it turned out that they had a, a heart defect, each of them, right. that uh, was undiagnosed. And so there uh, was a physical ailment that yeah. linked up with this cultural belief system that linked up with 
this situation where they felt unprotected. They felt like they were letting their ancestors down because they weren't doing their rituals. They were living in apartment buildings in Minnesota in the 1980s, and you can't sacrifice chickens in your apartment building in Minnesota. And so they weren't able to, um, you know, uh, do the ancestral work. And so the earth spirits were had free reign over them. Yeah. Uh, and so that all that stuff worked together to create literally what, you know, I think it's still, uh, I think it's still postulated, but it sounds very probable. These were men who died in their sleep and they died with a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. You know, I have a, I want to say one more thing about the, the, uh, a proposed evolutionary aspect of of sleep paralysis. You know, the the running theory for our listeners is that sleep paralysis is nature's way of protecting ourselves from acting out our dreams. And and when that um, protective kind of restraining order is lifted with things like run behavioral sleep disorder, people do really bizarre things, which which creates nightmares for litigators, like beating up sleeping partners or even driving across town and and killing people or killing partners and the like. But I, I have a, a study that I want to propose. Maybe if you know people that could do this, Ryan, I'd love to see it take place. And, and my conjecture here is that that if when the mind of, uh, say, for instance, a meditation master has been purified, and in fact, in, in my deep understanding of some of the um, so-called mystical traditions, what happens with a complete enlightenment awakening is that there's no longer any such thing as the unconscious mind. Everything is transformed into the light of conscious awareness. And at that point, to me, it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to conjecture that if that is in fact the case, there's no reason for the restraining order by nature to impose um, something like sleep paralysis. And therefore, they should be able to, to tell with meditation masters that maybe this ban has been lifted and sleep paralysis or sleep atonia is no longer in effect. And so mm-hmm. um, this is something that could possibly be tested. But uh, if you know the people that want to do it, maybe we can start a kick Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. I mean, I really think I mean, sleep paralysis, we talk about its negative aspects, but it also, there's a lot of people who have positive sleep paralysis experiences as well and you know and i think that just as we talked about alien abduction narratives some of them may be sleep paralysis experiences i think this is also true with angel visitations um i don't know if you're familiar with the work of emmanuel swedenborg who was um a mystic from the 1800s you know i looking back at some of his vast journals he was a master of hypnagogia he was a master of of, of dreaming, of lucid dreams, and and clearly was experiencing sleep paralysis at times. And he, you know, would have these lengthy conversations with angels in the yeah. sleep state yeah. um, on the verge. And the way he describes it as, you know, I'm in between worlds and I, you know, I mean, he's very distinct. It's like, wow, this is it. He is talking about a visitation. Um, and so, and so in other indigenous cultures have positive experiences as well is this is where this is the place this is the realm where ancestors come and depart and give information yeah. those who have passed on come give information this is you know the gods the goddesses the angels so now uh, the so you know the creatures that are larger than life um, the whole pantheon is 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 there that's to me it that's just blows my mind that's awesome and, and also again it's it's this 
once again, it's it's this kind of alchemical thing, which I talk about in my, in my modern terms is near enemies and near friends, is that wherever you find, like, you know, the light shadow thing, where, wherever there's a noble quality, there's an ignoble side. And, and, and this is, again, works, it's a two-way street. So we tend to, tend to think of sleep paralysis in mostly negative terms, but to, to hear these accounts of Swedenborg and others about the positive aspects of this, uh, again, it's, it's, it's largely about how we relate to these experiences. Uh, and the crucible for transformation really seems to be one of understanding, really being able to appreciate what's actually taking place instead of bringing our projections and our imputations upon it. And then yeah. we, we, we see the silver lining within it. So, and being uh, comfortable with and being comfortable with ambiguity, which I think is a very yeah. difficult thing. And that that but that's that's it is to is to to stand or to to be in um, in a void like space, to notice your fears but not let them take you off track. To 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 stay centered and to be open to experiences in as they occur in the moment. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so let's switch gears just a teeny bit here, Ryan, if you don't mind. When you look forward with your vast lens on the lucid dreaming landscape for so many years, what is it that excites you the most, both in terms of the science and, and the popular understanding of where lucid dreaming is going? I, uh, hmm, that's a great question. So I'm finding myself interested in how dreams and sacred landscapes work together and i'm interested in culturally and historically and archaeologically how other peoples use these same mind states that we have to 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 work for them and so i'm always delighted when i hear about some new discovery of like an an ancient nap uh you know pedestal or something that was used in a used in an egyptian setting or uh, in an ancient greek setting and and to find out that oh here's another example of a culture that used that used these capabilities uh for healing right you know like asclepius and and yeah. that that whole cult complex um from ancient from ancient mm -hmm. greece and um so I I really am interested in in the wide span of not just lucid dreaming. So we've talked about how it's so expansive; it can be so many things to so many people. I'm interested in bringing for myself personally, bringing it back to healing, transformation of self, um, understanding of the ecology that we're intermeshed in and how can we use greater awareness to alleviate suffering in the here and now. And that comes back to honoring place, understanding spirits and landscape um, and reclaiming projections with the people we meet on the street. Um, and so using lucidity as, you know, in our dreams as practice for living as well as dying. Beautiful. Yeah. And then what concerns you? So that's really terrific. That's what excites you. And I can totally see that. It'd be fun if we had more time to talk about things like geomancy, sacred geography, um, and, you know, in, in, oh, the, yeah. in, the, in the Tibetan worldview, this whole idea of sacred ground and the power of, of uh, pilgrimage places and the like, the, the, the 
kind of symbiosis between inner and outer landscapes. Oh my God, we could do a whole another podcast on that. But what what concerns you when you look uh, into the crystal ball of the future of these nocturnal practices? Where are some red flags for you? Well, you know, I'm delighted that lucid dreaming is finally becoming a household name, you know, thanks to the work of Stephen LeBurge and, and a lot of the dream practitioners from, and their research that they did from the 1970s and onward. And then finally, you know, Christopher Nolan, you know, doing Inception, which really yeah. um, made, made the word a house, you know, people know what lucid dreaming is now. And there's, of course, misconceptions with Inception, but, but it got some of the core ideas out there in a way that it's like, wow, a dream is something more than, than that. And, you know, my, my only concern is that um, it's sort of sad how people kind of, I don't know, I guess how the industry of lucid dreaming keeps getting co-opted by the, the, the marketing colonization language that we talked about kind of in the first part of this hour. Yeah. Um, and so, and so beginners who are so thirsty and so ripe for what I would say, ripe for initiation, the uninitiated dreamer comes and, and just essentially what happens is, is that they scratch the itch of lucid dreaming. Um, and then they hit a roadblock, which is something scary, something unexpected. Yep. Um, something didn't go the right way. And then there's no cultural support for that person afterwards. And they drop it. They drop it like a hot rock. And then that's it. And, and, and that was their lucid dreaming adventure. And so I'm, you know, that's why I can sort of position, consider my positioning as like, I don't want to be lucid dreaming 101. I want to be the person that people come to after they've kind of crashed and burned. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and so by the work that you're doing, Andrew is just creating, creating this community, you're doing that work. And so I'm, I'm glad there's, there's voices like you that are using your, um, using your forms you know, to, to move the work forward. But yeah, you know, it's, it's funny, the same, <laughs> you look at the, what's happening in the Barnes and Noble, like you look at the landscape of Barnes and Noble, you look at the bookshelf and it's like, yeah, this stuff, it's the same stuff. Yeah. It's, yeah. uh, yeah. it's, Let's see something. Repur let's repurpose. I don't yeah. want something new. I want to see something old. Yeah, <laughs> that beautifully said. Something deeper. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, in my personal adventure, like with you, Ryan, that's that's where I'm going. You know, it's like what what can we do to to bring some of this ancient wisdom back into the um, modern light, supplant it, support it with modern scientific theory and and social study, psychological thought, um, and the, and the like. And and to me, when I when I cast my lens in that direction, and that's one reason our team got so excited about launching our little venture that we're calling Night Club, is that from our, from our side, we see um, great potentiality. And, and the principal reason, very much in, in resonance with what you just said, is when I do my gigs all over the world these days, the single most common question slash complaint at the end of the program is like, well, that was cheery, but now what? Where, where's mm -hmm. the support? What can we do next? And, and people say, is there a monastery? And I'm kind of tuned into this world. And there isn't. There's no... Yeah, especially the masters, you know, the dream, the dream yoga masters, but almost by definition, they fly below the radar. They're not, they're not out there touting their wares. And so getting the yeah. support that's really necessary, especially when you start doing this deeper work, it's like you were talking about earlier, set yeah. and setting. It's a little bit like an acid trip, but this time it's just an internal mind trip. Set and setting are important. And if you have 
the support system, even in this case, an electronic monastery, an electronic platform like we're doing and, and getting support with people like you, then people feel held. We, we can feel a little bit held in cyberspace, just like we can feel held in, in um, you know, kind of psychic space. And so I think the more people feel that embrace, the more they, they can relax and, and feel a little bit more fearless in terms of the way they venture forward. And, and so if you have just another second, you're also one of these people that is really on top of the gadget business, um, the sleep trackers and the apps and the transcranial electrical stimulators and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and I'm wondering both professionally and personally, where do these um, so-called adjunctive methods fit in your mindset? Do you use them personally? Do you advocate them? Do you have some, mm -hmm. I know with, with Ursula Voss's work and the like, there are some, some very legitimate concerns and warnings around that. But as a general um, approach, how do you how do you talk to others around those um, modern kind of supplements? Yeah. So, so yeah, I totally I totally have a moment. And, and what I would say is, whatever works. Um, there, I don't I don't really have any kind of you know moral compass for what are the natural ways of going lucid versus unnatural ways. I'm a believer in cognitive freedom. Mm -hmm. um, you know, tr you know, notice how you're training your brain for sure. Uh, where, you know, what kind of video games are you playing all day long? But video games bring on lucidity. Um, that's, right. that's kind of proven now, um, right. thanks to Jane Gackenbach's work. And yeah. and, um, and so there's nothing wrong with um, integrating some of these these newer tools into a holistic plan for going lucid, um, as long as I would say that the you know that your plan is truly, truly grounded, and um, you know you've, like you're set, set and setting. You know, is this a good time to go lucid in your life? And uh, do I have the the space in my home, you know, to do this, to to do sleep practices and not really irritate my partner? Yeah. Um, is this a good time for me? You know, sort of psychologically, what's going on with me? Um, do I do I have someone I can talk to if I need to? Uh, if if the going gets rough and, and so once those sort of things are answered and basic requirements are met, I have you know nothing bad to say about, for instance, galantamine. You know the work I've done with Scott Sparrow and mm -hmm. and University of Texas. Uh, we we did a double blind placebo tested uh, regime and and. And galantamine works just like Stephen LeBurge has yep. known yep. and talked about for years and years, um, yep. and um, and now it's clinically validated. Uh, it induces lucid dreaming, uh, something like a two to three times effect, maybe more, depending yep. on the the person and the you know the population. Um, it can be used adjunctally, and galantamine I think also has some other effects as well that might be interesting. It it seems to rattle our cage a little bit. Um, hmm. We're beginning to look at these uh, these dream texts and looking at the the themes, and um, galantamine dreams are a little more violent. They're a little more emotional. They're a little more vivid, and hmm. so they te they tend to to bring you know bring it up, bring up that trouble um, at the same time increasing one's ability of feeling that they're safe and that they're open. So it might even be an, a healing adjunct that could possibly be useful for, for nightmares or even for PTSD nightmares. 
So yes, supplements can can be effective. Um, taking a pill, you know, that you wash down with like a beer while you're watching Terminator on television isn't <laughs> the best approach to going lucid, and I wouldn't advocate for it. But taking a pill is an ancient is an ancient way. You know, it's taking medicine. You're taking the other. You're taking a poison into your body. Um, it's a ritual. And so what we know about lucid dreaming is is it's it's a series of you know the induct the induction strategies induction strategies they are rituals. Um, rituals are really effective to shifting consciousness. Yeah. And so yes, you know, put the mugwort under your pillow, try yeah. it out. You know, <laughs> yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, and the masks they're they're great if if you can get them to work. And I haven't you know honestly I haven't tested. There's sort of a the newest wave. Um, Iwinks Aurora has a mask out. I, I haven't personally tested it. Um, I certainly haven't um, electrocuted my brain using transcranial, and I—that's the one thing I would stay away from. Honestly, yeah, let's, 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 let's focus on that for just a second, because as you know, Ryan, that's getting a lot of buzz these days. And and, and Stephen, Stephen's a dear friend, and, and he's. He has a lot of red flags on this one. We were talking about it not that long ago in the reservations about the studies and whatnot. But tell people a little bit about what that's about. And well, if Stephen's against it. That's all we really need to know, isn't it? I mean, he's a psychophysiologist. I mean, he's probably the lucid dreaming researcher who knows more about the actual electrical output of the brain than anyone. It's perhaps Ben Baird that's doing yeah. work right now. <laughs> so, so that's a strong thing. And even Ursula Voss, who, right. who, whose work is being cited by some of these companies creating these masks, she says, please don't buy right. these products. Right. They're not meant for commercial space. We're in a laboratory. Right. Um, um, we're in, in her lucidity measures. If you look, kind of look at them, I mean, measures of lucidity are going up in a statistical way, but they're not really like necessarily like jolting the lucidity forward. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I mean, let the science continue to work in a safe laboratory setting. I, you know, I have one brain. I would much rather take an ancient way of altering consciousness, i.e. a supplement than an electrode to my head. But that's my own personal bias. I completely agree with you, my friend. It's like I don't want to, you know, toast my head with uh, some some gadget like that. When when you look into your crest, um, crystal ball, Ryan, do you, do you see any? I mean, outside of that one, do you see any um, magic bullets on the horizon? Or, I mean, my one of my biggest um, con- contentions here is is what sociologists refer to as single action bias. You know, it's one of the biggest problems I see with the lucid dreaming marketing thing right these days. Is you know, buy my Buy my gadget, buy my mask, buy my whatever, and and you'll find your way in. And and I think, sure, you can have some some hits and misses on that thing. But my approach is is much more um, kind of ecologically oriented, gestalt oriented. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's kind of holistic. You know, all these what I call the forces of the dark side, social, cultural, phenomenal. You know, an integral model. They co-conspire to bring about non-lucidity. And in my view is. Again, alchemically, we can, by becoming familiar with those, by knowing thy enemy, we can transform those into friends. And, and to me, it's always a, an ecological or um, general kind of systems theory approach to bringing about lucidity. But with mm-hmm. that said, what do you see, if anything, on the horizon that has that, this kind of promise or any promise in terms of 
what people in the West would call a magic bullet. Do you see that at all? Well, happening? I mean, I'm ex- I am excited about about the progress that's been made with Galant. I mean, um, in you know, because Stephen LeBurge and Kristen Lamarca also had their own study. Yeah, with Ben, um, right? Yeah, with Ben Baird, right? And and they had also strong positive. Um, you know, feedback on on lucid dreaming with galantamine, and this was again placebo. Their study was placebo controlled, and and it was the best results that they had was galantamine in association with a lucid dreaming practice, such as wild, or you know mild. I think it was mild, and um and that's what Scott Sparrow, you know, and we found as well is that the best results was galantamine with something like middle of the night meditation. Yep. Or dream reentry. And yep. so uh, it, it is um, taking an opportunity and focusing the mind. But so you have to do the work first. Um, I think, you know, I would love to see more dream ins, you know, um, mm. you know, where, mm. where, where, where you said that there's no there's no sanctuary. There's no or there's no uh, temples. temples. Right. right. So, right. Um, you know, the idea of, of, of more dream temples, wouldn't that be something that could kind of take this all together because we would create community best practices. People have a charged experience. They can have an initiatory experience. I mean, that's what workshops do when we do workshops, right? We create these experiences and they're hypercharged. People are so, um, you know, when you're so enthusiastic, your enthusiasm makes lucidity happen. That's right. And then go home and how do you take that back home with you uh, to, to your own life? And and you know, that that I think is is always is always the hard part, and and that is grassroots. And so yeah. the so the 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 new idea is the old idea, Andrew. It's grassroots. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, no. It's actually it's actually the title. I'm I'm writing this trilogy of books, um, and the third one actually is entitled "The Lost Temple of Sleep: um, Integral Dream Yoga and the Path of Awakening." And it's exactly along the lines of what you were just saying. That like you were alluding to earlier, if you look at the ancient Greek healing temples of Asclepius, you know, part of what brought about this incredible ability to have a dream, lucid or not, with the divine physician, the, the, the healing god, was this this temple, this um, in, entire atmosphere that co-conspired to bring about the, the lucid dreaming state. And, and um, to me, that that's really the way to go. But, you know, in terms of like go-to methods, what you said is is absolutely my go-to method. So if I 100% have to have a lucid dream in a lab or someone asks me, what is your go-to method? It's, it's really what you said. I do the wake and back to bed method. I set my alarm to go off two, three hours before I wake up. I take eight milligrams of galantamine. I stay up, meditate for 20 minutes. I go back to sleep. I will have a lucid dream virtually every single time I do that. And so Done. share with us, what is yours? Do you, what is your go-to method? Do you have one that you can share with us? Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because <clears throat> I have not tried to incubate a lucid dream now for a number of years, uh, and part of this was a per, is a personal preference because I have young children, and getting enough sleep is a problem for me, and so <laughs> I just have to kind of let a lot of the experimentation go for a while, and so I've been very happy with whatever comes my way, um, and. And luckily, sleep deprivation and, and sleep interruption also increases lucid dreaming sometimes. <laughs> so you have a so, um, so my go-to method that. is to have kids. <laughs> there you go. 
have like, kids. Yeah, it's like, not no, it's not sustainable in, in, in any way, but <laughs> because eventually that you do you get used to the novelty. But so increasing vigilance in it in is always a, a way to going about it. But before you know, before the kids, um, and for instance, the work that I did in Nicaragua when I was trying to induce lucid dreams about about rock art. Uh, there's this ancient pre-Columbian rock art on the island of Ometepe, and I was trying to incubate dreams about rock art so I could explore rock art in my lucid state, learn about it, see how I envisioned it and maybe become a better field archaeologist. That's a whole nother thread you know, we could go another time on. My method was to journal before bed my intentions. I mean, this is all classic like Patty Garfield 1979 wow. stuff. Yeah. Journal my intentions. I'm going to have a lucid dream tonight when I close my eyes. I, I'm going to you know, stay awake. If I wake up in the middle of the night, I'm going to drift back to sleep and remember my dreams. So setting intentions specifically, but in a non-judgmental, loving way um, when it, for when it doesn't happen. And then setting the alarm, waking up in the middle of the night, staying up. And then I would read and I would um, either read a book about dreams or I would go through my dream journal and try to find, you know, and just sort of look through the dreams for themes and basically just get my frontal lobe going again, drifting back to sleep um, with that intention in mind. And yeah, it was extraordinarily effective. Wow. I mean, that's just awesome. Terrific. And so, I mean, I'll, oh my, my gosh, my dear friend, I could talk to you for hours, but just before we close, well, perhaps the last question I can toss your way, unless there's something you want to riff on, is, as you know, the single biggest issue around lucid dreaming, at least in my experience, is um, having the discouragement. And so when someone comes to you asking for inspiration or how to manage discouragement, what, what advice, how do you counsel them? Yeah, so I mean that's a huge a huge piece of it, uh, and I think all of us can relate to that, being discouraged. Uh, I tell people to take a break, um, and wait to the natural desire to go lucid comes up again. And what I teach in my ebook, which is the Lucid Immersion Guidebook, and it's on Amazon. It's also on DreamStudies.com, which is where my you know, my own self-published eBooks are sold. Mm -hmm. What I basically teach is a method that clusters practices, you know, so you're trying to do several lucid practices in a, at a time, but for only a short period of time, say, I'm going to do these practices for the next five days because I'm looking at my calendar and it's looking pretty clear. Mm -hmm. um, my roommates are out of town and, uh, you know, or I, you know, I've just, I'm going to be able to sleep in and I'm going to be able to get that extra rim, whatever kind of, so sort of set a time period of, I'm going to immerse myself in lucid dreaming for a day, two days or five days, set the practices, do the practices, do the work, journal the whole thing, what worked and what didn't journal the non-lucid dreams, mm -hmm. and then let it go. Yeah. Take time off. Yep. Because we're just not wired to just pick up these, these weird little lucid dreaming induction strategies and keep doing them 
Um, and besides, the mind just gets used to them anyway. And yeah. so part of lucid dreaming is about creating positive stress or vigilance mm -hmm. um, and mixing that up with novelty. And um, and that's hard to do when we are kind of like living the same day every day. So yeah. so basically you kind of you create these you create these Asclepian moments. Yeah, beautiful. And then and then let it go and then and you know and sometimes it's odd but you'll get an odd lucid dream when you've let it go because that's just the way. It's when you it's when you open and relax. I mean it's it's part of what Stephen Laberge does as you know Ryan with his programs when he does them in Hawaii and I've attended and coached out some of those with him is these programs are incredibly spacious and that's by design because I this kind of openness is is integral to opening to these um, I mean we call them altered states of consciousness but I would I would say that what we perceive as normal consciousness that's what's altered lucid dreams are more than natural bandwidth but I think that's really important for people because especially in the West we have a tendency to try too hard to overachieve to expect instant results and and what I say is it's taken a long time for us to get so non-lucid where we're really essentially practicing non-lucidity all the time every time we uh, succumb to mindlessness distraction or forgetfulness those are just synonyms for non-lucidity and so it's no wonder that we're virtuosos in, in the perverse art of non-lucidity because we practice it all the time and so understand that um, be patient be open realize it takes a little while to to stop the titanic as it's running full steam across the atlantic and and just give yourself a little bit of breathing room and so yeah, so in, right. in conclusion here my friend Share with us um, what you're working on now, um, and and then finally, how people can learn more about you. So what is your current project? You mentioned something about the, the work with sacred geography and the like, which I, oh my gosh, I'd love to talk to you further about that in, in the future session. Oh gosh, so, yeah, so I mean, so briefly, I sometimes consult with an, a nonprofit organization called the Worldwide, Worldwide Indigenous Science Network, uh, which, um, works by networking together healers and shamans from around the world and helping them share their knowledge bases in, in, in the hopes that Western people also begin to explore, you know, our own essential selves that are underneath the, co the colonial mindset, um, that we all have ways of being that are, that are natural. Uh, it, they do really wonderful work, and so I, I do some dream work with them. I'll be going to France later this year to do some dream work with them uh, in a sacred setting. We'll actually be at Chartres Cathedral oh, wow. um, working some dreams, uh, which besides being an amazing cathedral was long ago, a it's, it, the, it's built on a spring. Uh, and it probably, you know, it was a pagan altar site before it was a church. So talk about sacred geography, you know, wow. going. To, so I'm, I'm really excited about about that. And um, I have a number of websites, you know, and one of the projects that I'm excited about that we haven't talked about is my my talisman project because I partnered with uh, a friend of mine who he makes uh, coins for a living. And we've made our own lucid talisman, uh, and we um, sell that on lucidtalisman.com. And it basically is a reality check tool, uh, and it's got a bunch of esoteric Easter eggs. It's very—I think you would dig it because it's—we've been talking about alchemy a lot 
kind of yeah. permeated throughout this this call. And it, it uses a lot of the alchemical languages and, and images. And the idea is that the talisman uh, used, you know, repetitively as a reality check can can anchor itself and then become a cognitive habit, and then it shows up in in your dreams. Uh, and it also can be used as as a mindfulness tool or or um, you know a fidget tool or for people who suffer with from anxiety, you know a way to to be a grounding tool. And so it has a lot of just solid ways of of of, of sort of increasing mindfulness. And we we donate some money every year to uh, nightmare research. Uh, hmm. So last year we donated to the International Association for the Study of Dreams um, for their student research funds. To, so so that will go towards funding further research into dreams and nightmares. Uh, so that's one thing that I've been working with that I've been very excited about. Uh, and I'm working on some new stuff with lucid dreaming that I can't really talk about it much yet, but I will say it's interesting because it's the theme is gamification. Oh, cool. Well, and I'm just working on with some way. I thought this this project was going to be a book. Maybe it will still, but I've been sitting with it for quite some time. And recently it kind of came to me. I woke up with the idea, oddly enough, and I was like, no, this wants to be this wants to be somehow a game. Oh, cool. And so I've been playing. I've been playing with it, and that's been that's been really fun. So anyhow, you know, uh, you mentioned my my blog, uh, which, uh, you know, I, I have not been very active there recently, but it's got some. It's been active since 2007, so there's so many articles there. Cool. Uh, cool. And DreamStudies.com is where my where my ebooks are. Yeah. Wow. A any final thoughts, General? I mean, we've covered so much really provocative terrain in the last hour and a half or so. But any any final thoughts you want to share with us before we? Uh... Sign well, just right? you know that I really think it's it's such a wonderful pursuit of loose the, the pursuit of lucidity um, that to just I think to remember to be to be patient and to let it come as it wants to come because dreams you know lucid dreams are dreams and dreams are mercurial and they have their own processes going on that we don't really quite understand. Uh, until decades later, looking back at our journals, mm -hmm. and just be super patient with with your process and uh, and as it as it unfolds, because it's because it's unique and it's your own. Yeah, yeah, well said, my friend. Well, Ryan, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to um, chat with us a little bit. It's always a delight for me. The most rewarding aspect of what we're doing is actually hanging out with people like you and um, introducing our audience to your work and, and this kind of cross-pollinating theme that is a charter of what we're trying to do here. So deep, deep bow of gratitude. Um, it's, uh, I look forward to future contacts with you. I look forward to your future work. And, and let's just let's do this again someday. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. This has been a wonderful, wonderful uh, end of my day. Terrific. Okay, my friend. We'll talk to you later.